Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, I love you very much, and it's the joy of my heart to be with you here this morning. We are officially in 2019 with both feet in now. No turning back, no turning back. And as, uh, as we look at what God has laid before us here this morning, we're also two feet in on a sermon series entitled Final Words on First Priorities as we're looking through the book of Malachi. Okay, Final Words on First Priorities Pointing to the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament and the last time that God spoke through his prophets to the nation of Israel for more than 400 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the final words he had to his people on what was the most important to him. And what was the most important to him then as he was addressing Israel is also the most important to us as he addresses the church. And that is why God's word is eternal and the book of Malachi applies to us ever so much as it applied to the nation of Israel. Last week, we opened up the sermon series with a sermon entitled God's Gracious Love. And kind of the portrait that I painted was uh, when I was a teenager and I was acting up and bad-mouthing my father in the back seat and he had to turn around and basically remind me of how loving he was and all the things that he did for me. Why would I treat him that way? And that's the tone that this book starts out with. God says to Israel, we talked about this last week, he says, have I not loved you? Have I not chosen you, the the tribe of of Jacob and not of Esau, to do all these mighty works and establish this holy nation? And have I not knocked down all these uh, attempts that the enemies have had to, to destroy this nation? Have I not shown you over and over and over how much I love you? And do you believe me? And if so, why have you not shown it back to me? That was the tone last week. This week, we're going to be focusing on one specific word And that word is worship, our response to our understanding of how loving and amazing God really is. The title of our message here this morning is Watch Out for Worthless Worship. Watch Out for Worthless Worship. As we look in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. And I thought as we get ready for the the message, I would share a bit of a lighthearted story that certainly has an application, but you're going to have to stick with me to find out. Okay? So I was thinking about... uh, life experiences and what applies to the passage that we're going to read here this morning. And I thought back to my college days at Georgia Southern. Now, I guess I'll just confess this to my church family. I had a, uh, a famous nickname that I was branded with my first year at Georgia Southern, and it stuck with me for five years. Thankfully, after I graduated, the nickname went with it. But if I tell you today, I may get the nickname right back. Uh, so I thought maybe I wouldn't share it, but I'm going to share it. My nickname in college, given to me by one of my uh, neighbors in our apartment complex, was The Big Hungry. And the reason why is I would eat everything that wasn't moving and a few things that were. All right, my, my parents were more than 600 miles away. I had no money, and I had the realization every day that I was going home to a, an apartment with an empty cupboard. So I had to scratch and claw my way to fill my stomach. In fact, if you had a meal with me in the late 90s, chances are at some point of the meal you may have heard the question, are you finished with that? Uh, there, there, there was no shame in my game. In fact, it got so bad, the one story that uh, continues to come up when I meet with my old college roommate is this. One night, he came into our apartment and I was sitting in the kitchen eating a piece of birthday cake. And he said to me, were you at a birthday party? I said, no. He said, is it your birthday? I said, no. He said, well, whose birthday is it? I said, Karen's. And he opened up the fridge, and there's this huge cake that says, happy birthday, Karen. He said, who's Karen? 
I said, I don't know. I do know this. She didn't pick up her cake at the Walmart bakery, so I got it for $2.99. (laughs) It It is a bad reputation that has stuck with me over the years. Now, why would I bring that up? Here's why I'd bring it up. I was a hungry college student, and I was happy to have everyone's leftovers. Can I tell you something? If we're not careful, we think the same way about God. We think he's happy to have a slice of cake with somebody else's name on it. And he's not. He's not a college student. He's not needy. He's the creator of all things heaven and earth. He's the God of the universe, and he deserves our very best. He deserves our very best. In fact, I know that he deserves our very best because he commands it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, this famous passage in the Jewish faith is known as the Shema. And here's what Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know, in one word, that is worship. And that is what God deserves. And that is also what he commands. So as we get ready to look at the text here in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, what's the big idea? In one sentence, make it plain and simple. Here's the big idea as we walk through the passage together. God is worthy of our highest devotion, and when we give him our leftovers, our worship is worthless. Say it one more time for the note takers. God is worthy of our highest devotion, and when we give him our leftovers, our worship is worthless. So if you have a Bible, please join me in the book of Malachi. Again, not hard to find. It's the last book of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 953 in your pew Bible, 953 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. We are in Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, finishing out the chapter in verse 14. Hear God's word to us through the prophet Malachi. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it 
when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a, weary, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, or this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace and truth. And we're sitting heavy on truth today. That you command us to give you everything we have because you gave us your very best in your Son. And Father, today is a heart check for all of us. Are we giving you our very best? Let, let today not be a guilt trip, but a heart check. As we walk through the text, Father, would you enable your Holy Spirit to deeply convict us, to show us where it is that we are not worshiping you fully the way that we should, the way that you desire for us, not because you need it, but because you're worthy of it. So be with us, Father, and let us dine upon your word that we would truly respond in repentance and faith. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So if you were not here last week, I, uh, I spent a little bit longer than I intended to. I think I've lost, I've lost any uh, trust from anyone when I say this is only going to take about two or three minutes. It took 11 minutes to go from Genesis 1 to Malachi 1 to give a background of the book. I'm not going to do that a second time. I will say that uh, thanks to Jody and his hard work, he put a clip on the website uh, that specifically just has that 11-minute recap of the Old Testament. So if you're new to the Bible and you don't know exactly how this story fits in with you as a Christian or you as a, uh, a seeker wanting to know more about the Christian faith, I would encourage you to go to cedarstreet.org and just look at that 11-minute video and kind of watch the story of Israel unfold. In, in a shorter recap, I'll just say it's the last book of the Old Testament, and we said last week of the 12 tribes of Israel, this one holy nation that God called unto himself, two of those 12 tribes are known as the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. And these two tribes got sent off into exile in punishment in a place called Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar for their disobedience. But 70 years later, by God's promise, they came back. And a hundred years after coming back, they restored the city, they rebuilt the walls, and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where we are right now in Malachi. Okay, so they've been back, they've already been punished, and in fact, generations of uh, folks from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin died without ever getting to come back. It was their children and grandchildren that came back. And so they knew God's holiness, and they knew the, the, you know, what would happen if they did not fear and obey the Lord. And they came back and watched God bless and restore. And Nehemiah helped build the wall and they rebuilt this temple. And all of a sudden, they fall back into sin again. And if there's one word that would describe the spiritual condition of the Israelites at this time, I think that word would be apathy. The word would be apathy. If you've never defined apathy, if it's not a word that you use often, the definition of it in the dictionary simply is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, passion, or concern. It's indifference. You don't, love any, you don't love whatever it is, but you don't hate it either. You just don't really care. That's what apathy is. You're just indifferent. Eh, whatever. Don't care. That's kind of what apathy is, and it's dangerous when it comes to our faith. And it's certainly understandable for someone that doesn't know God 
but not for the people of God. Not for people that know all that God has done. For the people of Israel, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them across the Red Sea, bringing them into the wilderness and then into the land of milk and honey and protecting them from their enemies and building a nation and then disciplining them and restoring them over and over and over again. How about for us on the other side of the cross to know what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would still have apathy, that we would still not even care what he's doing. It's a definition of the people of God that we've struggled with since the very beginning, the spiritual condition of apathy. Now, I think as we uh, talk about the passage, the word that I really want to focus on is worship. All right, Worship is what should happen. Apathy is what does happen when the people of God lose their focus. So I want to talk about worship, and I, I, I want to really define it so that we understand it, because when I was first a believer... And I moved back to uh, Southeast Georgia in 2008. Later on in 2009, I joined uh, Grace Community Church on Pulaski Highway. Most of you know Grace Community, know Mike Holt, he and his wife Amy. And I got to give Mike Holt a lot of credit. He's the first one that ever truly defined what worship is to me. Uh, I remember I went in his office. It's kind of a unique question, but I asked him a thousand questions. And I said, Pastor Mike, I got a weird question for you. I said, you know, I'm Italian. I grew up in Philadelphia. I love mafia movies. It's just part of my past. And I said, I know that that we're saved by grace through faith, and I don't want to be legalistic and say I shouldn't watch these murder movies. But when I'm watching them, I get this, this feeling in the pit of my stomach that it's dishonoring to God. I mean, how can God be honored by watching all these gory blood scenes and all the vulgar four letter words and and I'm torn because I grew up loving these movies, and the plot line is really entertaining, but the goriness and the blood and the, and, and the four-letter words, they can't honor God. What do I do? And he said, where do you think that conviction comes from? And I said, the Holy Spirit. He said, that's exactly right. He said, and what do you think happens when you change the channel instead of watching it? And I said, what? He said, worship. He said, that is an act of worship. When you willfully turn away from something that you otherwise would do or that you used to do before you knew him, and you willfully, as an act of obedience to God, do something that would honor him, that is an act of worship. I never thought of it that way. I don't know about you, but when I first became a believer, when I thought of worship, I thought of a worship service. I thought of a worship pastor. I thought of worship music. And in my head, the thought of worship was bowing down to something. <clears throat> Certainly that's an aspect of it, but that's just a small piece of it. All right, so here's how I would define worship. I would define it in two ways, okay? Worship is ascribing honor to God and then reflecting that honor towards other people. All right, so when we worship God in the service today, when we're singing, we're not doing it so that God will bless us. We're doing it because we're giving Him honor that He deserves. He deserves that honor. We call out how great He is because He's worthy of being called great. And then when we leave church, we're called to act like we follow Him. We're called to act like we love Him. We're called to act like Him. As people made in His image, we're called to reflect His love and His holiness and the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're called to reflect those things. And when we do, that's an act of worship. We're giving Him the honor that's due His name, and then we're honoring Him by taking that name out into Candler County and the surrounding communities and living for God. That is why worship does not start at 11 and end at noon. 
It goes every single hour of the day in your home, in your workplace, in the community. That is worship. And guess what? God deserves it. He does not need it, okay? Here's something else I didn't understand when I first became a Christian. If, be honest with yourself. You've probably had this thought. It's okay to admit it as long as you reconcile what the truth is. Most of us have thought this at one time. If God is perfect and doesn't need anything, then why does he constantly command us to love him? Why does he command us to worship him? Why does he say, I want you to tell me how great I am? Right? Have you ever thought that? Well, here's the thing. He does not need us to do that. He offers us the privilege of doing that because he knows that when we truly praise and honor him, we get joy and he gets glory. And God wired you that way. The example I always use is the Grand Canyon. It's beautiful and magnificent, and it was created by God in such a way that when you stand at the edge of it, you call out how great it is, and you take pictures of it, and you show it to your friends. I stood in the presence of greatness, the magnitude of the Grand Canyon. God wired you to be able to look at that and praise how great it is, because when you praise it, when you finally realize how great it is, it's joyful to call it out. And God wants you to have that joy, and God also wants to have that glory, not because he needs it, but because he's worthy of it. And he wants that for our lives. He wants us to pour out our hearts in understanding how great. He wants us to get a closer view of his greatness, the way that we get to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and see him for how great he is, because when we get that vision of who he is, we can't help but be filled with joy when we call it out. He wants more of what's inside of us to come out of us, and he wants us to know him, which, by the way, is the whole point of what we're doing Sunday night. If you're not someone that typically comes on a Sunday night, I challenge you, come. We're going to spend probably the next three months talking about who is God? What's he like? What does he want from us? We need to know who God is. You know, this is a, maybe an interesting illustration, but something that came to my mind really when I, we were singing. Um, so one of my favorite heroes is the great legendary football coach Vince Lombardi. And lately I've been reading, reading one of his biographies and I've just been thinking a lot about what made him a great coach because if you ever read about Vince Lombardi, he was a very flawed man, okay? Certainly had his priorities out of order. He had a marriage that was on the fritz. He had all kinds of issues. Um, But there's one thing that made him great. And one of his players, the Hall of Fame offensive guard, Jerry Kramer, said this about Vince Lombardi. He said, I used to hate him. He said, because he would just ride me and ride me and ride me and ride me and ride me. And I would sit in the locker room and say, I can never play for this guy. He said, but one day he patted me on the back of my head and he said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. He said, and it got my motor going. He said, and I realized that Vince Lombardi would not stop until I gave him everything I had. He would not stop because he wanted what was best for me and he also wanted the glory of, being, of coaching a championship football team. Now let's apply this to our Christian life. God wants you to worship him because he wants more from you. He wants to dig down at the very pit of your heart. He wants your relationship with him to be real. He wants your worship to be authentic. He wants everything about your heart to be poured out to him. And when that happens, you get the joy and he gets the glory. That is true worship. And that's why we're here. And that's what he deserves. Now, before we walk into the text, one last thing I want to talk about is the sacrificial system. If you're new to the Old Testament, uh, certainly... When I first read the Bible, it made no sense to me 
why it is that God would call people to sacrifice animals, okay? Maybe it's not something that you're familiar with. Well, what this does, this sacrificial system that God set up for the nation of Israel, it reflects his holiness and it reflects his love, all right? The book of Leviticus, uh, I, I, I enjoy the book of Leviticus, but it's one of those books where everyone who had good intentions in January to have a Bible reading plan, when you get to Leviticus, we separate the men from the boys, Okay, we find out who's going to really plow through and read the word and who's going to put it down because you get into all these blood laws and all these, these, these uh, legalities and you start wondering, why is God doing all this? Well, when it comes to the sacrificial system, there's one passage in Leviticus chapter 17 I want to focus on for a second. It will help the rest of the passage make sense. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for our, your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Here's what that means. God knew that Israel was full of sin, but he wanted them to be a holy nation unto himself. And so he gave them these special laws where they could sacrifice animals on the altar, and he would take the penalty and the punishment that they deserved and place it in the blood of the animal. Okay? Now, no animal was sufficient to fully cover over all their sins. That's why they had to keep sacrificing animals. And as we get to the end of the, of the message here, pointing to Jesus Christ, that's why we needed Jesus, the final Passover Lamb of God, who takes, over the sins, takes away the sins of the world. All right, so when Israel would sacrifice animals and the blood would be shed, God took the punishment that he was going to put on the people and he put it on the animal, all right? So that shows God's holiness that all sin must be dealt with, okay? The Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but it also shows God's love and that he's willing to take that punishment that we deserve and put it on a sacrifice. Again, ultimately pointing to the final sacrifice who is Jesus. So, Now that we understand God is holy and loving when he calls the Israelites to sacrifice animals, now we understand why when he tells them to sacrifice these animals, he tells them to bring their very best. Don't bring the animal in the flock that you don't care about. Bring the spotless lamb. Bring the lamb that is is the youngest and strongest, the one that would bring the most money at the marketplace because when you put that beautiful, important, expensive, valuable animal on the altar, you'll know the weight of your sin and the weight of my holiness and grace. Give God your very best is what he was telling Israel. All right. So now that we understand worship and we understand the sacrificial system, now we can kind of walk through this together. And I want to look real quickly at three reasons we need to watch out for worthless worship. Three reasons we need to watch out for worthless worship. First, it profanes God's name. It profanes God's name. Verse 6 and first part of verse 7 says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. All right, at the very beginning of the passage, he shows that he's two things. He is a father and he is a master. And he said, in your earthly life, you honor your father and you also obey your master. So why are you not doing that to me? A father is to be honored in love. Is that not the fifth commandment? Honor thy father and mother. So we would expect that in our earthly lives, we honor our earthly parents. So why would the Israelites not honor God? And then he says, not only am I a father, I'm also the master, and I should be feared and obeyed. As our creator of all things heaven and earth, it is right to fear him, and it is right to obey him, because he is the creator of it all. 
And let me just say one quick word. Sometimes our love can grow cold, even to the people we love the most. But when it comes to our relationship with God, when our love grows cold, our fear should not. Do you know that sometimes when I don't feel like doing certain things or avoiding certain things, it's not my love but my fear that keeps me aligned with God because I know that God is love, but I know that God is holy. And I do know this. The Bible tells me that as a believer in Jesus Christ in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So my fear of God is not one that I will lose my salvation, but I do know this. God is still in the spanking business. And my fear of him keeps me in line. Some of the most egregious sins, some of the worst things that we ever do is not primarily because we don't love people enough, it's because we don't fear God enough. We don't realize the consequences of things that we do, so we do them thinking, well, God's a God of grace. He is grace, but He doesn't play games. And He's aware of everything we do. Nothing is done in secret that He's not aware of. And so a healthy fear of God keeps us in line when sometimes our love grows cold for a season. And this is what the Israelites are forgetting. They're putting a polluted offering on the altar. They're not giving them the best animals for the sacrifice, and it's worthless because it rejects God as Father, and it rejects Him as Master, and it smears His very name because He's worthy of our best and not our leftovers. So let me ask this before we move on to point two. Would people know the name of God by watching your life for one month? If they were to watch your life, okay, let's just say that you're a made-for-TV reality show and the camera's on you 24-7 for one full month, could people look at you and know that the name of God is great because of the way that you treat people, because of the way that you talk about God, because of the way that you honor God in the light and in the darkness, when your hand's over the computer mouse and when you have the remote control in your hand? The way that you honor God, do they know that his name is great? When you look at someone in love and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. Or you you look at someone and say, yes, I don't have time, but I'll make time for you because it's important to God, it's important to me. Or the way that we worship him in this room and in this community, that it just pours out. There's something about God that's real. There's not, it's not ritualistic. God is real, and we have a real relationship with Him, and it changes our life. Could people look at your life for one month and say, their worship is real? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we making His name great in our life? That's what the Israelites were failing at. They were profaning His name because their worship was worthless. Number two, watch out for worthless worship because not only does it profane God's name, but it prevents God's blessing. It prevents God's blessing. Listen to verse seven, uh, the second part of verse 7 through verse 9. It says, But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us? With such a gift from your hand, he will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. This is an abomination to take our very worst instead of our very best and say, here you go, God. I gave gave my best to everybody else. I gave my best to everything else, and I'm going to show up on Sunday morning. I'm just going to 
Take what's left and hand it over to you. Enjoy it. You should appreciate it, God. I'm at least here, aren't I? All of us maybe have had these sinful thoughts flow through our mind. What certainly flowed through the mind of the Israelites, they would show up with the worst. They would give something that would not have hurt to give to anybody else. Part of worship is sacrifice. All right, let me say this. Whether it's your time or whether it's your money or whether it's your energy, we should worship God in such a way that we feel the sacrifice when we do it. That's how we know what we're giving God is valuable. When you're giving God money, if you're giving tithes and offerings to the service of the kingdom being built, you're giving it in such a way of saying, there's other things that I could buy with this, but the, the amount that I'm giving is significant enough that I feel it when I put it in the plate. Or when I make a commitment to be a part of a Sunday school class or a worship service or a committee, and, I, and I'm tired and it's been a long week and I show up, I'm saying, you know what? I'm sacrificing the, the, the recliner. I'm sacrificing the NFC divisional game. I'm sacrificing this or I'm sacrificing that because I want what I'm doing to actually be worship, that I'm giving away something important because God is more important. That's worship. Until what we give God hurts a little bit, it's not, it's not really worship because we would have given it away anyway. The Israelites would have already done away with blind animals. They couldn't sell them in the marketplaces. And they were just giving their leftovers to God. And we need to be careful of the same thing. I remember I had a... Uh, a cousin back in Philadelphia named Jerry. And these words chill the blood in my veins. We were sitting at the table on a Christmas morning. We used to go up to my great aunt's house at the house that my family came over from Italy. And all my great aunts, my grandfather's sisters were there. The last one passed away a few years ago. But we were sitting there having a Christmas lunch. And uh, my cousin Jerry walks in. He's about uh, early 70s. He said, yeah, we, got, we just got back from church. He said, I took my son Nikki with me. And I said, oh, good. He said, he said yeah, Nikki didn't want to go to church today. And I told him, I said, son, eternity's a long time to burn in hell. You better, you, better get to, you better get to church. You better show up. And you know what I call that? I call that just in case, Christians. We're going to give God a little bit just in case. We're going to show up at church just in case he's real and just in case me being at church appeases him enough that I won't, I won't face eternal judgment. Well, God says, why are you even bothering to show up? You don't understand my heart. It's not that God keeps an attendance sheet. And here's how you know if your heart's right. How do you feel when you miss church? Do you feel guilty? Or do you just miss God and miss being with his people? If you feel guilty, let me, let me tell you something. God's not keeping attendance. You get no credit for being here today. God's not going to bless you anymore Monday morning because you were here Sunday afternoon. That's not how it works. You cannot put God in your debt by good deeds. You can't. But you can come here and enjoy Him and enjoy His people and watch Him work in a mighty and powerful way. And that's when you know your heart is genuine. When I'm out of town with Ashley and we go to see my sister, sometimes we go to her church, sometimes we don't make church. I don't ever feel guilty about missing church, but I almost always miss being here. I miss being with people that I love, and I miss being together as the people of God, worshiping a healing Savior. Can't put a price tag on that, because that's true worship. So again, it's not a guilt trip, but it's a heart check. What's the primary reason you're here today? Do you love God and His people, or are you wanting something else, and you're saying, God, if I do this, will you bless me so I can have this? 
All right? I'm not putting a guilt trip on you because when I didn't know God, that was part of my life. When I was growing up, you know, and, and my parents would take me to church, I remember driving out of the parking lot thinking, good for the week. Now I can get home, put on the football game, and get back to life, get back to what I really want. I don't feel that way anymore. I'm the last one to leave this room every single Sunday morning, not because I'm the pastor, but because there's a lingering effect of the Spirit of God that I enjoy, even when I'm alone in this room. Can't multiply that. Can't manufacture that anywhere else. I love God and I love this church, and it's not phony to say I want to be here. I want to be with God. So as we, as we get ready to draw to a close, we say that worthless worship profanes God's name, it prevent, prevents God's blessing, and it provokes God ju- God's judgment. In the essence of time, I'm not going to read through verses 10 through 14, but I'll just mention a few. I'll just say that leftovers are always rejected from the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God says in verse 10, I will not accept an offering from your hand. What he's saying is, unless what you have is genuine and sacrificial, I don't want it. Because it's not true worship. You're not going to miss it if you give it away anyway. And you wouldn't give it, he says in the passage, you wouldn't give it to your governor. So for us, he's just saying, you wouldn't give it to your family or friends or coworkers. Why are you giving it to me? I deserve more. It doesn't have to be pretty either. It's not that God is looking for us to show up with shirt and tie, saying everything perfectly, knowing everything perfectly. He simply wants your heart. You know, I think in the Bible about the, the, the orphan or the widowed woman who dropped the two coins in the plates, all she had. I'm sure her fingernails were dirty. I'm sure the coins were dirty. And it's not that God needed those two coins. It's that when she showed up, she gave God everything she had, and it was worship. So God's not expecting you to be a Bible scholar. God's not expecting you to be perfect. God's expecting you to give him everything you have, whatever that is. And he'll accept that as true worship. He will accept that as true worship. But he also says in verse 11, no matter what happens, whether you decide to worship him or not, his name is going to be great. He says, from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. And then at the very end in verse 14, he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He also says in the New Testament that if we will not praise him, he can make the rocks rise up and praise him. He does not need our worship. He doesn't. He privileges us with the opportunity to come and enjoy Him. That's why He created us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together is one trinity in perfect union. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they were not lonely when they created the world. They didn't say, I, ha- I have to create a, a, a creation because it's just the three of us up here. We're so lonely. No, there's one God in three persons so wonderful that God said, I want a creation to come and enjoy how great I am because I don't want to keep myself all to myself. That's why he created us. And then I just want to remind us what God does for those who are apathetic. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 16, as he's talking to the church at Laodicea, here's what he says. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you want to know what worthless worship is like to God, it's like room temperature coffee. It doesn't serve a purpose. Hot coffee's good. Cold coffee's good. I like iced coffee. It has its purpose for some. Room temperature coffee doesn't suit anybody's needs. It's just worthy to be spit on the ground and you move on. So let me just close in a familiar place. Summing it up in one sentence. God gave us his very best by offering his son 
So we owe Him our very best by offering our heart. Say it one more time. God gave His very best by offering His Son, so we owe Him our very best by offering our heart. I said before, in the sacrificial system, all these animals were being uh, sacrificed and the blood was being shed and they realized animal after animal after animal was being murdered but yet over and over and over the sins still had to be covered because it was an endless amount of sin so they needed one final sacrifice that was worthy of all the sin past present and future and that sacrifice was made at the place that eddie jones sang about here this morning calvary that's where the sacrifice was made when jesus died on the cross and shed his blood it covered over our sins, and he took the penalty that we deserved. And when he rose from the grave, he made a way from death to life, and he took all the perfection that he earned and gave it to us. Took our penalty, gave us his righteousness, and he calls us to respond in repentance and faith. But that faith calls us to genuine worship. Genuine worship. It starts with what we do in this room on Sunday mornings, but it pours out on what we're doing the rest of the week. So here's what I want to say as we close. Let the next six days of your life be real and true worship to God. Think like the way Mike Holt taught me to think. That when you actively do something that you know honors God even when it's hard, whether it's what you're watching on TV or stopping a, co- a conversation of gossip or whatever it is that you may be going through, when you actively stand up and obey God, that's an act of worship. And God says, give me your best. Give me your very best the next week. Speak in such a way that my name is honored and not profaned. Sacrifice to me in such a way that my honor is something that I'm worthy of and not something that you're just giving me the leftovers on. That's what God calls us to, that nothing in our life is ever phony. We don't come to church and just say what we're going to say and go through the motions so that God will bless us when we go home. If that's the case, I hate to tell you this, you're not going to be blessed. You get no credit for being here, but being here is the present itself. Being here is the joy. Being here is what we're looking for. God is the blessing, not what he can give us, but who he is. And the closer that we get to Him and the clearer a vision that we get of Him, the more joy that our hearts will be filled with and the more natural true worship will be. Now as we enter into a time of invitation, this is a time to make things right with God. If your life has not been an act of worship, if there's something that you have in the pit of your heart that you love or fear or desire more than God... I challenge you to come down as we sing and lay that sacrifice here at the altar and say, God, I want to worship you above everything else. But if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, let me tell you why you need Him. The Israelites would have been killing animals for all of eternity because our sin is a part of our nature. But Jesus Christ is the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice on that cross is the only thing worthy to cover over all your sins, past, present, and future. And if you're not willing to confess with your tongue that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, when you face God, you'll have to take an account of your own life. And none of us will be able to stand before a holy God and be declared innocent. But if you put your faith in Him and you give your life to Him and you allow Him to be the Lord of your life, Salvation will come to this house today. This is what it means to worship God rightly as we watch out for worthless worship. Let's pray together.
Father, our hearts are desire factories and we wander in the way that we worship so often. All of us do in some way. But your word brings us back to true center. Always does. And your spirit, he moves in our hearts and reminds us that you, des- you are the one that we should fear and love and desire and honor and obey more than anything else in our life. God, my prayer is that when we show up at Cedar Street Baptist Church in this sanctuary, that everything we do in worship is real. And it's not leftovers. It's the best we have. Even if it's a broken hallelujah, it's a true and genuine hallelujah. It's the best we can offer in this day and time. So, Father, I pray that you'd forgive us for not giving you all of our hearts. And for anyone in this room that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray at this time that you would change their hearts, that they would come to know him and worship him in spirit and in truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.